Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Rachel Myro in for Alexis Madrigal. Are you feeling overwhelmed by everything? I'll be honest, I burst into tears daily reading the news about mass shootings. I wake up in the middle of the night worried about a nuclear war and climate change and the gradual collapse of our democracy. I can't make emotional sense of a concept like one million COVID deaths. And all of this is layered on top of all of the stuff happening with me and those I love. You too? Let's take this opportunity on Memorial Day to make space for our collective grief and talk about strategies to cope. That's all coming up after the news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Alexis Madrigal. COVID, gun violence, suicide, war, climate change. The news headlines are overwhelming. I'm not saying people didn't suffer in generations before this time, but everything going on right now, it's a lot. This hour, we've put together a panel of people you might call experts in processing grief, individual and collective, from a variety of perspectives. Joining me now, we have Pauline Boss, a retired family therapist, professor at the University of Minnesota, and the author of two beloved books, Ambiguous Loss and The Myth of Closure. Welcome to Forum, Dr. Boss. And we might not have her on the line just yet. Thank you. My pleasure. Oh, wonderful to have you here. We also have Berkeley-based writer Monica Wesolowska. Uh, she's the author of Holding Sylvan, A Brief Life. Welcome back, Monica. Thank you for having me. Pauline, I want to start with one of your book titles, Ambiguous Loss. For, for those who haven't had the chance to read it, explain what you mean by that. Well, ambiguous loss is simply an unclear loss. There's no there's no evidence or proof of life or death. There are two kinds. The first kind is physical, where the person is missing. And for example, soldiers missing in action or children who are kidnapped. Um, more commonly, it would be a, a common in divorce or adoption. The second kind of ambiguous loss is psychological where the person is present, perhaps living with you, but their mind or their memory is going. And the example would be Alzheimer's disease or the 80 other kinds of dementias um, that are existing today. And more common examples would be preoccupation with our devices, with gaming uh, or with work. And the myth of closure? 
The myth of closure is something I learned from over 40 years of working with ambiguous loss. Is there, there is no, there is no resolution. At first I said there is no closure to that kind of loss, but as time went on, I learned that there's also no closure for a clear-cut death. Monica, um, holding Sylvan a brief life is about the loss of your newborn son. Can you uh, explain for us, and I'm afraid to say rather briefly, some of what happened, uh, how you lost him, how you came to write this memoir? Sure. Um, uh, So about uh, 19 years ago, my first son uh, was brain damaged during my labor with him. So a very unexpected um, trauma. Doctors didn't really, had no idea. Uh, he was born, seemed perfect. But within a few hours, uh, we knew that something was terribly wrong. And as time went on and uh, he ended up in a coma, I started asking questions about whether he was being unnecessarily kept alive. And um, in the end, we fought for the right, my husband and I, to remove him from life support, and we um, held him uh, to the end of his life. So um, that is that was in brief what happened. Um, and it took me about ten years to be ready to write a memoir about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I would agree absolutely with um, Dr. Boss that. Closure is a is a, an elusive thing when it comes to grief, and I, as a writer, I was already a writer when my son died. Was really wanting to make sure I didn't write a book that falsely had a false narrative of um, kind of triumphant closure to grief. So it took me many years to know how to write that book, and I and I didn't want the ending to be. And then I had two more sons which I did and which is wonderful, but I really wanted to talk about the way that that loss um, is with me always, uh, but can be with me in ways that are healthy. Yeah, that that grief becomes a fellow traveler uh, on your life path. Absolutely. And I am very grateful to my son, Sylvan, for having given me the, that depth of love to carry with me always and which I feel uh, affects me when I hear about tragic losses for other people. And I feel that I am here in part to hold that grief in my distant way, you know, for people who will never meet me, won't know that I'm doing that, but I, I do take that role seriously. Pauline, how would you describe the difference between the kind of grief that comes with losing someone you love personally compared to the grief that comes with horrific events like school shootings? Oh, my, and that's what we're facing today. So we have our personal losses, clear and ambiguous. Um, My own husband died um, in 2020, but not of COVID, of a stroke. He was 88. Um, So it was somewhat predictable given his health issues. Um, Then you have terrible, terrible tragedies that come unexpected without prediction in the wrong age group, totally um, with with no uh, meaning to the loss. 
And what we know now that living with loss, um, as was described, requires a long time to come to a meaning, to making sense of that loss and to living with a purpose so that other people do not have to experience that loss. But when you have something like a school shooting, it's sudden and it's, it's irrational uh, on so many different levels. Um, and therefore, it, it, we don't have a meaning for it. It is nonsensical. And, and that kind of a loss will be much harder to, to live with over time unless the people pick up the purpose of fighting so that it won't happen again to other people. That doesn't close the issue. They don't get over it, but they find purpose in striving for some purpose that might make sense out of change. But how do you respond to a feeling I imagine many people listening to this show have right now, which is of of powerlessness. You know, people have marched in the streets about gun control. They they have, you know, rallied with other parents to try to harden the target of an elementary school, which, I mean, it, it just gives me chills just saying that. And yet there's that feeling like like the awful the awfulness just keeps coming. I know what you're saying. I feel the powerlessness myself and brings me to tears when I hear about this last situation and all the former ones. Uh, and then all, all the ordinary losses that we have that hurt so hard. Um, I think we, of course, we're powerless in the first moments of hearing about this, but we have to find some purpose in getting our power back, which means we have to act. In some small way, we have to act to bring about change that is more meaningful, that is less senseless, that prevents these kinds of things from happening again. Even with a family death, when my little brother died of polio in the 1950s, uh, the summer before the vaccine came out, uh, we couldn't make sense of him playing junior high football one Friday night and then having him die the next Friday from bulbar polio. We made sense finally by going from neighbor to neighbor collecting dimes for the March of Dimes, which helped for the sock vaccine to come out eventually. We found a purpose in action. Action helps when you're feeling helpless. So find something to act and of course, Voting is one, but it's not tomorrow. So we have to find something for action before that time. Kind of not exactly resolution, but a form of solace and activism. Yes, exactly. I myself just went to a demonstration. I'm 88 years old um, for choice just a few weeks ago here in Minneapolis. We have to act. I'm sorry to say I've done this before. I'm sick of it, but I'm not going to give up. We need to act. Monica, so many people are afraid of acknowledging a truly awful loss. I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk about that, that feeling one has sometimes, you know, at a, at a dinner party or even in a, in a park where, where people treat you as if you've got something contagious. They're, they're afraid of, of interacting with you in a genuine and honest way. Yeah, that's a really true fact about our culture that people tend to think that if you bring it up, uh, yes, it will 
be contagious. It will spread. And the truth is that we are all suffering right now for many different reasons. And I think, you know, it's true of physical pain as well as psychological pain that ignoring it may feel better in the moment, but long-term that, that pain just finds new places to come out. And I think we've got a lot of pain going on in this country right now, which is why we have so much uh, violence really and unrest. And um, so ignoring it is, is not uh, the, the way to release that pain. <clears throat> so as a writer, I'm really focusing on my specific pain, but I, I do that um, to give other people a, a way to think of their own pain as potentially belonging to a story. Uh, as a storyteller, I just believe deeply that that stories, having the ability to put words to our pain is incredibly comforting. And I don't mean just as if you're a writer, I mean for all of us. And so when I listen to people who are going through um, the awfulness of having lost someone to a school shooting, for example, you know, those parents at first can barely put language to what has happened. They say the most mm -hmm. basic things. He was here and now he's gone. I sent her to school and I never expected her not to come back. That's as far as you can go at first. Yeah, you have to, you have to give people the space to be at the moment in the grieving process that they're in. We're taking time and making space for our individual and collective grief today with Monica Wazalowska and Pauline Boss, and we'd like to hear from you. How are you coping? Where do you find comfort? Email your story to forum at kqed.org or give us a call now at 866-733-6786. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Alexis Madrigal. On this Memorial Day, we've been talking about grief with retired family therapist and author Pauline Boss and writer Monica Wazalowska. And joining us now is poet James Cagney, coming to us from his home in Oakland. Hello, James. Hey, good morning. Thank you for having me. James, your life changed when you were 19 and found out that you were adopted. And I'm wondering if some part of that revelation felt like loss. Absolutely. Um, if anything, it was sort of the expectation of who I was as a person. 
Um, at 19, I've gone through my childhood. I've, I've had a sort of established understanding of who I was in the world, who my family was, and what my identity was. And at 19, I was basically stopped and explained that those expectations weren't true. And there was this weird sense of of grief within myself that I didn't understand. And I guess with time, it's understanding that the life and identity that I was living and assumed to have uh, was kind of was kind of gone and at the very least changed in a massive way with a, with a different understanding. So yeah, it was a strange, it was a very strange way to explain that there was a, this, this living grief within me for a life that was dead, quote unquote, or gone, but, um, but that I was still sort of struggling with. So, so there was, I was saddled with a lot of questions and a lot of, and cornered by a lot of, uh, of, of issues around that. And then not long after that, your, your parents died and you lost your childhood home. I mean, oh my God. Uh, how has, has writing poetry helped you cope with all of that? You know, well, on the, the absolute shortest answer is what else could I do? Um, fortunately, writing was something that I had a facility for, but it turns out that during that journey of, of, you know, of going through the adoption story, um, losing my, actually the, the route to losing my house started with the Loma Prieta earthquake, um, and sort of trying to reestablish myself within my biological family was, was also very, very weird. And, there's the sense that there's no one for me to turn to, you know, it's uh, therapy was not like a uh, was not like a really available option to me then. But at the same time, with the energy of grief, it was necessary for me to process it for me to talk about or to really think through what I was feeling, even if thinking through it meant I had to deal with a lot of darkness and a lot of shame or a lot of hurt. Yet and still, I, there was still this need to process and move through it. And, and really the only uh, clearest way for me to do that was through writing and through poetry. It allowed me to have a voice and allowed me to direct and say things in language that I had no individual I could turn to and say that there was no one I could trust in a way uh, with my feelings as they were changing and, and becoming more ragged. But I could say everything I needed to in art on the page. I could, I could empty myself uh, in the work and, and through poetry. Can you read one of those poems for us today? I'm, I'm thinking of the one called Requiem. Um, that poem was one of the earliest poems uh, that I wrote as a, as, a, as a poet, and it was one of the first that I wrote after my father died. My father's passing um, left a tremendous gaping hole in, in me and in, our, in my uh, house and in my life with my mom, and there was some need to, uh, to fill that, to address it. So I wrote this poem, uh, Requiem, for him. Shut down the highway. There's nothing up ahead. The catfish have stopped biting. The great man is dead. 
board up the liquor stores, hide the guns under the bed. Old river is run dry. The great man is dead. Jump out the back window, your shirt quickly shed. Hit the ground running. The great man is dead. Gamble your last check. The children don't need bread. The cupboard will remain bare this year. The great man is dead. A fight breaks in the bar, broken glass and hot lead. Fire one off for cowboy. The great man is dead. Mama dances alone. An old 45 plays in her head. Love is now rationed. The great man is dead. This trail leads nowhere. In whose footsteps shall we tread? Fill up that hole, boy. The great man is dead. Mm, it's so powerful. Thank you for reading that, James. Thank you very much. Pauline, you know, you mentioned activism earlier, but I'm thinking that the arts, whether it's poetry, whether it's music, uh, you know, whether it's visual arts, whether it's it's us making the art or receiving the art, um, there's something about creative re- expression that helps us process grief and live with it. Yes. Well, the arts uh, have, for eons, been uh, in a situation of high tolerance for ambiguity. In fact, playwrights love it because that's what keeps us on the edge of our seats. Poetry is uh, ambiguity. It doesn't make a clear-cut sentence like in an essay, but it's beautiful, as we just heard. Um, so I've learned from the arts, and in my books, I write about the arts and, and how it's tied to ambiguous loss and how frequently it's based on our suffering. Um, the thing is, we live in a culture, though, that is not based on arts, sadly, It's based on mastery orientation and productivity. And because we're a mastery-oriented culture, we don't like suffering. Eastern cultures are more tolerant of it. Uh, And so we want people to get over it and get over it fast and become productive again. A society has to learn that that's not a healthy way to look at loss. And we have to know what kinds of losses we have. Right now, we have both ambiguous losses and losses from death. We have a pileup of losses right now, and we have to name them. We have to face them, and I even encourage you to make a list of them, the ambiguous ones and the clear ones, because we can't cope with something until we know what it is. And our anxiety and sadness right now is a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. Monica, you mentioned earlier, you know, you've been writing fiction for years before you lost Sylvan. Did that experience alter your relationship with writing? That's an interesting question. Um, I I certainly brought what I had learned from fiction writing to memoir, but it changed the urgency for me of what I was writing. Uh, And so... That just I wanted Sylvan to be memorialized, to live in language, which I know I have a lot of clients, students who come to me because they have this urgent need to memorialize someone. 
And um, the, it, it was hard after finishing the memoir, actually, because I, I had a hard time going back to fiction. Instead, I had to kind of pivot. And now I'm writing children's books, I think, because I realized in order to write, I needed to write from an urgent place that really mattered. Yeah, I, I hear that. James, I, I wanted to ask you if you feel there's a difference in the writing you do in response to, to your personal losses versus the writing you do in response to uh, the news headlines you're reading about. Um, there, there is. There is. Um, and, and I think the key difference is possibly anger. Um, I, I feel like, uh, I feel like I w respond and, and have been, uh, trying to write in response to a lot of what's been happening in the news now. And that work feels very angry. The, the poems and the concentration that's come out of that is, is this need to just sort of, I guess, vent, uh, a level of frustration and writing personally you know, it's it's not so much anger as maybe as even sort of a, a vague disappointment in in the way that things turned out, and or just trying to, when in writing personally and writing and transforming a personal story or memory into a poem, it's it it becomes a matter of uh, just trying to understand and trying to curate, um, because you know it's sort of like my family got reduced. It's sort of like I don't really have relatives to turn to and bounce memories off of um, and to get things correct. It's all upon me to sort of curate and make sure that my memory of whatever my life meant to me um, gets noted some way and shared some way in, in, a, in a work of art. So yeah, there is most definitely a difference. It's, it's maybe it's with myself. I'm a little bit more gentle. And when I'm thinking in terms of what's happening politically or what's happening in the world, there's there's a sense of of well this sense of anger a sense of wanting to change and yet as others have said already of feeling powerless about that uh, powerless about the uh, the uh, the ability to change. I want to expand the conversation now and head to the phones. But first, what questions do you, the listeners, have for our guests James Cagney, Monica Wesolowska, and Pauline Boss? Also, do you find solace in the arts, books, music? cooking, gardening. Tell us about it. Email your story to forum at kqed.org. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or at KQED Forum. Or give us a call right now at 866-733-6786. And now that you've got your phone at the ready, 866-733-6786. And why don't we talk first to Richard in San Rafael? Hi, Richard. Hi. Good morning. Can you hear me? We sure can. How are you doing? Okay. I'm doing well, and thanks so much for taking my call, and I really appreciate participating in this discussion. One of the things that occurred to me was that, yes, we're, we're overwhelmed, no question, and I think that the uh, cultural anxiety level is at an all-time high with what racism, the violence, fires, drought, starvation, war. And the question is, what do we do with it all? Um, I think that 
if I equate all of this to, well, what we do with it, among other things, the options include, you know, crawling under the sheets, uh, having a drug, drinking, uh, gambling, shopping, whatever that takes me away from the reality, the denial. And if you equate this with a 12-step program, which starts with the premise, and I appreciate the reference made by the, uh, by the speaker a few moments ago, to our powerlessness. The fact of the matter is we are powerless over all of these things. We can't get our head around it and say, well, how do I, how do I address all of these things? Well, the simple fact is I can't. I can't address all of these things. That's but very beautifully put, Richard. Yeah. If you move along in the in the in the trajectory of a spiritual awakening and come to understand that it's not me who can handle all of these things, and I come to understand that there's hope in something that's greater than me that I can't even see and relate to, and and by by understanding that. Then I come to understand maybe there is something that I can do. You know, maybe maybe I can participate in, you know, in the fact that the International Rescue Committee is trying to deal with starvation in the Sudan. Maybe I can make a contribution to that. And I can't at this moment do anything about the bombing in the Donbass. Yeah, but. In other words, it's, it's, it's the simple things. And if we're all involved in responding to what we can do, you know, there's a reference in the Beatitudes that says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Well, if they're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, they're doing something about that, because we all have gifts that we can apply to the problem. Richard, I'm, I'm going to break in here now. I, I appreciate the preaching, but I do want to give others a chance to speak this hour. Um, thank you again for all of those comments. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure what I can say that wouldn't sound glib, but 100% to all of it. Matthew writes, as an anthropologist by training, I'm struck by the privatized nature of grieving under the conditions of late capitalism. People are largely bereft of the tight clan bonds that sustained us for millennia and the ritual enactments that mark life passages. Is there an opportunity for shifting the cultural zeitgeist through collective rituals? What is the path for healing for those who are unchurched, unhoused, unloved? I uh, feel for our youth who are crowding our mental hospitals and who suffer from ritual deficit. Paulina, you know, we're, we're getting quite a few comments and questions about, you know, the place of community. Um, and and that's very grief. important. Um, uh, very important. A couple things have been said that are, are really important. Memorialization, that is writing is a memorial, any kind of memorial to people who have been lost. But community-wide, we also have to get together to remember the people who have died or who are ambiguously lost, uh, like from a tsunami or a flood or disappeared, and the people who died as well. 
of memorialization, getting together the rituals don't have to be religious. They can be artistic. They can be musical. It doesn't matter what it is, but a ritual would involve more than one person. So community is a very important part of it. And the artistic, symbolic remembering of the people who are lost is also important. It is in the research shows that memorial, memorialization and rituals are absolutely essential. And the other thing that I've found has helped with people is something that one of your callers mentioned about um, the serenity prayer. Uh, in fact, there, that is a stress reducer prayer for us right now. And I recommend in my book, Both and Thinking, I both feel powerless and there is something I can do, even if it's small. I both feel powerless and there is something I can do, I can act. You have to have both of those ideas, what you can control and what you can't control, or we will drive ourselves mad right now. Ilana writes, I appreciate the usefulness of putting grief into the context of a story to make it more comprehensible, but so many of our stories are about blame. The doctors screwed up, the police screwed up, my husband screwed up, or the right wing, the left wing screwed up. If you're listening to this and feeling overwhelmed by the news, by your life, by everything right now, join our conversation. Email your story to forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. But whatever you do, stay with us. You're listening to Forum, and I'm Rachel Myro. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro, in for Alexis Madrigal. It's Memorial Day, and we're talking about grief and loss with our guests, Pauline Boss, a retired family therapist and the author of the books Ambiguous Loss and the Myth of Closure, writer Monica Wesolowska, author of Holding Sylvan, A Brief Life, and poet James Cagney, 
uh, uh, sorry, of Oakland, and also his books are called Black Steel Magnolias in the Hour of Chaos Theory. Actually, that's just one book, but there you are. I'm taken over by this conversation. We're we're really hearing from so many people, and I wish we could keep going for another two hours with this. But first, let's go to the phones and talk with Sarah in Albany. Hi, Sarah. Are you there? Hi. I am here. Hi. What's your story? My story is about the ambiguous loss of my children, Amy and Malachi. Amy and Malachi were abducted by my abusive ex-husband in June of 2020. I have not seen, hugged, cuddled with my children since June of 2020. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that, Sarah. I did not want to turn bitter or angry, and I had to find an outlet for the love that I have inside of me. And that's what led me to my purpose and my calling. I truly believe it is my calling to be an educator. I am currently a credential student at San Francisco State University, and I'm currently student teaching kindergarten in Richmond, California. We had our fourth lockdown last week. I find purpose in teaching. And when I look at the data for my school where I'm student teaching, it tells me that 97% of my students are socioeconomically disadvantaged. 59% of my students, they are English learners. And so to to cope with the, the loss, the ongoing loss of my children, I found teaching to be the perfect place to cope and to heal. And all the love that I have for my own children that grew under my heart and the children that I meet in my classroom, it makes the difference. I tell people that I give my students something that they can hardly get anywhere else. And it is the most valuable thing that I have. I give my students my time. When I talk to my students, I get down at their level and giving a child one-on-one attention and talking about things that are important to them is the most valuable thing that you can give them. And that's what I give my students. And they thrive under my care. It is absolutely beautiful. But when I talk to my trauma therapist about how I experience this joy in the classroom, and then I come home at night in bed alone thinking about my children and their safety, And she told me that it is possible in life to have good moments and very sad moments. And so I'm walking around with like my heart just being ripped out of my chest. But then I walk in the classroom and my students, they thrive under my care. And that's my calling. Sarah, what do you what do you tell children who who come in uh, to the classroom in the morning feeling overwhelmed with, with, you know, whatever aspects of the news they're receiving uh, at home? I listen to them, and I ask them what's important to them. And I had a student tell me that her grandma had wings. And, you know, I'm like, darling, humans, we don't have wings. <laughs> and she's like, yes, my grandma, she died, and she got her wings. And My students, they talk about death often, and I don't make it a taboo topic. 
when they talk to me, it's something that's important to them. And it's my duty, I believe, to listen. And one student told me that her grandma died and her mommy's been crying and crying. And the student, she asked me for something. She said, teacher, Sarah, can you find me a bug and bring it in so I can look at it and touch it? I created a whole lesson plan series around this student. I brought in four bugs, and her favorite one was the ladybug. And so I wanted to bring her a ladybug to touch without leaving the other kids out. People don't know that you can buy ladybugs on Amazon. And so I created a whole lesson plan series about ladybugs so that I can give my student that ladybug that she wanted. And so that's how I I can help my students cope. I meet them where they're at. That's such a beautiful story, Sarah. Thank you so much for, for sharing it with us. And I'm, I'm pretty sure this show is going to spark a run on Ladybugs. <laughs> um, let's go to another call now. And Sean in San Jose. Hello. Hi, Sean. When, um, hi. when people of color mourn or um, um, try to make you aware of our losses, it's it's not that we think our uh, our children or our elders or our illnesses are more important than yours. It's that we have long proven ways of uh, doctoring our people and ministering to, minister, uh, ministering to our people. And we live in a country that that is still trying to develop its own, uh, its own culture at the expense of every other culture, regardless of that of those other cultures' influence uh, uh, and uh, enrichment uh, for the for the benefit of the of the whole country. You know, we've had our um, you know our languages belittled, our dances and our songs outlawed, and you want to talk about death but from firearms, we have, a, you know, indigenous people, we have the longest relationship with that sort of loss in this country. We don't, <clears throat> so when you hear us talking about that or, tr- or trying to bring some awareness to it, um, take a look. You can, you can learn a lot from a lot of the other cultures that, that exist uh, in, in, um, in, in our country. Mm, I can, thank you for the, for these comments, Sean. Yeah. I, and it's, yeah, 100% true. We have a lot to learn uh, f- from the cultures within our own country, right? We, all of us together have, have stuff to share with each other um, that's certainly a lot better than, than the kind of, uh, <laughs> can't say it on family-friendly air, that, that we're receiving through the news uh, along these lines, commenter Nancy writes, almost 100% of the time after any tragedy, I hear reporters state the person or community is still grieving. This is often 24 hours after a shooting. The message is that grief is so short. I wish reporters and others would realize that, that grief is ongoing. Monica, any thoughts about the ways that that reporters and hosts and others in the news media can think more consciously about the ways we're crafting narratives at the same time we're we're sharing the facts. Wow. Well, I think that it's there's it's a uh, there's a kind of a split between the facts and 
the I loved how Pauline talked about ambiguity and what happens in the arts. Um, so I think we don't have as much, um, we don't celebrate the arts enough in this country, obviously, but, uh, shows like this, where you open up some room for personal stories are, uh, really an essential way to, uh, make it give room for people to talk about things that aren't as simple. I, I, absolutely agree that the idea of somehow reporting that my goodness the grief is still happening 24 hours later is is ridiculous um but i do think that there's actually something else that needs to happen i think it's we need room for the arts i i was incredibly moved to hear of a texas um, librarian who the day after the shooting thought i can't go to the library i can't have story time today. It's too awful. And then she thought, no, actually we need, this is a ritual going back to this idea of rituals. I need to have story time. These little children need their story time. And that story time may not be specifically about what happened. In fact, those little children may not have even heard the news. I would hope they had not heard the news, but if we give space for listening to stories that allow us to have emotions. I think it starts really, really early that we need children to understand that having emotions that aren't clear cut, that um, maybe feel incredibly personal um, and not connected to what someone else is going through. Um, if you give room for that so that kids learn to go through their emotions, even though one person's grief may be completely different from another, or one community's rituals may feel very different from another community's rituals. There's communality between us all in terms of our needs to express that beyond the factual. Yes. Yes, Pauline. Well, I agree with her 100%, and I would add to it art. Uh, after 9-11, when I worked with the families of labor unions in uh, New York City, the children had an art table and they would draw their expression of emotions. Um, what we need to know today is that grief is not something to get over. You don't need to get over it. You can be sad for a lifetime. But the researchers have found it's like oscillations, ebbs and flows, good days and bad days and that they become farther and farther apart as time goes on. But 20 years from the time of your loss, whether it's ambiguous or a clear loss like death, 20 years from now, you may see something that makes you feel sad and you may shed a tear. That is normal grief and don't let anyone tell you it's not. You do not have a timeline. You do not have to get over grief. But if you are not functioning, and if you are thinking of self-harm, uh, self-loathing, then you need to get professional help um, if time has gone on and you're still at that place. But the majority of us experience normal grief. And if we know that what is wrong, the culprit is the news, the culprit is COVID, uh, the culprit is disease, not us, then we can live with the grief and loss over time forever. 
Paul, I, I just want to uh, make sure you, you don't get lost in the conversation. I've been thinking about the ways loss can bring us together. Uh, and, and I'm wondering if you, like me, have gotten into some deep conversations with complete strangers uh, after discovering that you both share a certain kind of loss, like losing a, a parent or both parents young. Or sorry, I, I meant to say James. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> and actually, absolutely, absolutely. Because um, even listening to that that question, I was like, a grief absolutely is a uh, is a kind of like journey, um, and it's sort of like you do find a way of uh, bonding with people who share similar dents as you do. You know, it's it's sort of like because sometimes going through an experience is incredibly isolating. And it is uh, in, in very, very helpful to, to find another individual who has a story, uh, who has an experience that, that rhymes with yours in a way, um, that, that, uh, that, that there are other people out there. And I think that's the other reason to, to create art, even as specific and as unique to your story as possible, because the more you narrow down your truth to just what happened to you, it seems like that makes it more universal. Somehow being more honest and more direct about your own unique experience through grief or through whatever somehow opens that up because other people are able to read and see that, oh yes, my feelings about something were very, very much like that. And it's kind of a relief to run into someone um, who has already been to the place where you are struggling at and has either created something or has just found a way to, to move on. It, it kind of gives you motivation to, uh, to keep pushing forward and to live. I love the idea that experience rhymes. <laughs> I'm going to steal that and use that in future conversations. I think we have time for one more call. Let's try Beth in San Francisco. Hi, thank you so much for this topic. It's so important. Um, I was just listening and just but I'm a nurse and I've been a nurse for 20 years and um, and a parent of a teenager. And I just been experiencing like a constant level of grief and uh, during the whole pandemic. And I just really have just the way that I wrote, um, you know, dove into the healing part is just really kind of attaching to meditation and presence and just um, spending time with my daughter. And I just have to say, like, it's just, it just feels like there's no end in sight when it comes to the grief, especially with all of these things that's been happening with the shootings. And, and of course, the pandemic still continuing. And, like, I just think it's really important to remember to, like, sit down and be present because it's just, I've seen so much death over the last two and a half years. And um, I don't really know how to how to you know move through it completely but all i know is that like i know that being present makes me feel um better in my body and in my heart you know yeah yeah thank you for sharing that beth i mean i i think that that sense of you know the, the old proverb is smelling the roses but it is taking the joy in each in each moment in the day where we can find that joy to keep from being overwhelmed. Uh, Pauline, I'm, I'm wondering if, if you can speak to this sense that we're just on a roller coaster ride. I, it's not that I know I've been feeling compassion fatigue because 
I haven't with, you know, one awful thing after another that keeps coming at us. But but is there a way to, to sort of address that within oneself uh, to sort of uh, keep going, keep putting one foot in front of the other, keep, keep being able to recognize those moments of joy? Yes. And, and I must say the medical people, nurses and doctors have had a horrendous time, not only because of the overworked and overload they've had, but because there were some people who did not respect their knowledge and that demoralized them as well. My heart goes out to, out to you on that. Um, both and thinking, as I said before, really helps with the utter stress that we're facing right now. Uh, find something good to balance the bad, find something you can control it because there's so much we can't control. That's why a lot of people were baking sourdough bread, by the way, during COVID. It gave you two hours of control with a nice reward at the end of it. That kind of small coping is important in this time of overwhelming stress. And in the book I write about the historical context where we've had chaos for several decades, a chaos like during the pandemic and during World War II, after which oftentimes comes some change for the better. And so that's my hope. Now it won't come tomorrow uh, and it may take another decade, but change will come for the better. Thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure talking with Pauline Boss Monica Wazalowska and James Cagney. Um, we're going to have the audio up on the webpage at uh, kqed.org slash forum in just a few uh, if you want to listen back. And thank you again, all of you, for joining us. I'm Rachel Myro, and you've been listening to Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening 
because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Soul to Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Soul to Story are available now.